If you have a brain, you have bias. So let's just own it. Some biases help us by simplifying our decision-making process. Other biases hold us back by impacting who gets hired and promoted, and even who we approach to be our friends. Welcome to Breaking the Bias, a podcast where we interview impact makers who are breaking the bias when it comes to inclusion and equity. Because sharing our stories is how real belonging happens. You know, what can companies do differently? I mean, listen to our employees more and listen to them in a way that we haven't done before. In this episode of Breaking the Bias, Consciously Unbiased founder Ashish Kaushal virtually sits down with Vishali Shah, Vice President of Diversity and Inclusion at Randstad SourceRight, for an unplugged conversation about why diversity should not be only a metric and how to track the impact that DEI initiatives have on people, the benefits of normalizing mental health at work, how to better listen to employees during the great resignation and beyond, and much more. Now, on to their conversation. What does um, inclusion mean to you? Um, You know, there's cliches about this, but to me, inclusion is when diversity is a part of the organization's overall strategy, approach, its standard behavior. And when it's not treated, you know, when diversity is not treated as a separate marker, um, you know, it's not a metric to be achieved. Um, So to me, inclusion is, you know, the outcome where the organization's diverse members thrive in their roles Mm -hmm. towards both personal and organizational success. So whatever, whatever the organization um, and the people need to do to make sure that this is kind of the DNA. Yeah. No, definitely. And I always, I always actually talk about how um, diversity is when you don't even notice the different type of people in your organization because it's so, so integrated. And then yeah. the inclusion was where those voices, those diverse voices are not only heard, but they're acted upon. So it's one thing that you say, we include everybody, but then they give ideas and you don't do anything with those ideas and they feel rejected, right? And so if the ideas are good, then you implement them. And I think that's one of the keys that people feel empowered to do, to contribute. Um, yeah. In our efforts to meet, set and meet diversity goals, companies focus on metrics such as number of diverse hires. Why do you think we need to change this conversation? You know, I feel really strongly about this because while I've been in the corporate world, you know, long enough to know that metrics are important, right? We need to know where we're going. We need to know, you know, what the goal is, what the North Star is. But it's important that organizations use the right metrics. Um, oftentimes with diversity, it's just following whatever the sort of popular um, metrics are out there. And this involves, you know, number of hires. This involves looking at, you know, the breakdown of your workforce. Um, but for DNI, I believe we need to look beyond just those, you know, traditional metrics. It involves understanding the industry, the market, right? Who are your clients? Who are your audiences? Um, what is the the social impact that you can have in the in the places and the people that you work with? So, getting smarter targets um, is the first step. Mm-hmm. But also building a more comprehensive kind of an intentional strategy that goes beyond just hiring for these numbers for gender or race or ethnicity, Um, you know, looking at the diverse sources, looking at experiences, looking at the backgrounds, and can you look beyond just those, you know, obvious criteria that your jobs have or that your organization believes to be a success factor um, so that you can build in the diversity into your organization. And, you know, a lot of things will follow then you don't have to follow them with metrics. Um, So looking at qualitative factors, I think creating a culture that imbibes diversity, um, no longer looking at it as a separate action 
that is, you know, one of those things that you expect your people or your leaders to do. But the goal is to make that the overall purpose. I mean, I love how things like productivity, sales, you know, profits, client service, like these are built into the organization's DNA. While yeah. there are metrics associated with it, you don't have to teach employees to, to strive for those, right? I want diversity to be like that. Yeah. It shouldn't be just a metric, right? It should be beyond the metric where it's reflected in every action and decision. Oh, absolutely. So speaking of that, can we go a little deeper and say, what metrics do you think companies should be looking at that they aren't tracking today? Yeah, um, you know, I think um, mm -hmm. the maturity of organizations really vary. So there are some organizations that, you know, really haven't quite started doing it, or if they're doing it, they're not quite sure you know, whether it's a good depiction or can they really communicate that, those that have moved beyond that and have started communicating it and measuring it more consistently are doing it in, you know, some of those standard EEO categories or those, those measures. And I believe that, you know, increasingly with intersectionality, with multiculturalism, like you need to go beyond just those, those specific um, criteria or metrics, right? Hiring for um, people for experience diversity, um, educational diversity, looking at your workforce to see, you know, do you have only college graduates or do you also have people with alternate, you know, experiences? I mean, it's said in job descriptions, you know, a bachelor's degree or equivalent experience, but how often, and you are in the recruiting field, how often, you know, are those people ever considered you know, at a fair game level if they don't have the college degree. So kind of moving beyond the, you know, the criteria of just looking at the numbers of people different color or race or gender, but to look at, you know, the, the experiences, to look at the backgrounds. Are you actually hiring from outside your industry? If that helps your industry, if that helps your organization's purpose, your solutions, your R&D, um, efforts or innovation efforts. So I think people are, you know, companies are measuring those types of diverse um, metrics. And then a very big chunk is looking at the non-permanent workforce. So there is hardly any measurement that happens there. And that is an ever increasing, you know, percent um, of your workforce. So Randstad does, um, you know, a talent trends um, study every year. And it shows that while over 75, 80% of companies think that diversity is part of their, you know, talent measurements and, and strategies and integral to what they do, um, less than 40% say that they do much about diversity in their contingent workforce. So there's a huge measurement and, and metrics and, and beyond metrics that doesn't happen um, for organizations. So, you know, that's another area. And then the third thing is when it comes to qualitative measures, right? So we talk about inclusion, we talk about belonging, um, but how are we actually measuring that? Um, you know, there are polls, um, but you're not, not polling your contingent workforce. Um, are they engaged? You know, are they representing your organization in the way that you want to be represented? Are they helping drive your brand? Are you measuring your brand for these things? So I think there's a lot of other metrics um, that can, can make the makeup. And I think it varies a little bit company to company, um, you know, industry to industry, but also maturity to maturity. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it's, it's interesting that you talk about the contingent labor piece too, because I always talk to clients about if the trend is that companies are essentially getting to 30 to 50% of their workforce being contingent labor. And if you're not including them in the diversity initiatives, then you really can't change your culture because half your company is being ignored. 
you know, and so that ultimately yeah. gets diluted. Yeah, and I think we, we all understand how much this rubs off on each other, right? So if in practically every team of your organization, you also have contingent workers and they're not included, they're not really, um, you know, looked at as in the same way or, or treated the same way, that's going to rub off on your people. So no matter how much good you do here, yeah. it's it's going to, you know, kind of counter the effort. So it's not smart. Like there's no ROI in hiring diverse people if you're not going to do all of this. Absolutely. Um, and speaking of diversity and inclusion uh, metrics, do you think it needs to be customized by industries, for example, like pharma versus financial services versus light industrial? Are there metrics that should be measured differently? You know, I think the metrics don't really change from industry to industry as much as, like I said, maturity to maturity, right? So where's your organization? I think we were just talking about examples of companies that, you know, have missed the mark on some very basic things. You're not going to benefit there by starting to measure, you know, who you're bringing into the organization when what you're doing for the organization isn't really in line with diversity efforts, right? So, so I think it varies to me you know, from the maturity of the organization. Sometimes industry maturity also comes into the play. Mm-hmm. Um, what I also think is the metrics can still be the same, but what you peg them against can vary. So in a certain industry, you know, depending on who the market, you know, is composed of or who the audience or the sales or the customer is composed of, you may want to look at it a little bit differently. And you know, that's where these pieces about, you know, multiracial identities come in. Like there are industries where you can't just look in terms of white, black, you know, Hispanic, Asian. Like there's increasingly, there was like 276% increase in just a decade in people who identify as multiracial. Yeah. So like, it's not, it's not sensible to keep looking at it in this, in this, um, uh, you know, kind of metrics. So I think from that perspective, the metrics need to change. Um, but I wouldn't say that it's necessarily industry industry specific. Mm, that makes sense. It's definitely true. So, what do you think the next frontier of diversity and inclusion is going to be in the contingent workforce? Oh wow! So I, I <laughs> love thinking about this and talking about this, right? So, um, I think from the next steps perspective, and again, you know, the, the concept of maturity comes into play. Um, there are there are things that we don't look at today. Um, we don't look at um, what is the makeup of our contingent workforce, first and foremost. Um, We also don't look at, um, you know, how our talent is progressing within the organization. Um, We might look at that based on gender. We might look at that based on, you know, maybe the the clear ethnic categories. Mm -hmm. But are we looking at it in terms of really every individual that comes into the organization? Um, you know, I read an article recently about who who do you want to give leadership training to? Are you just going to give them to your top performers and the people who are in your succession plan? Like that's common sense approach that has happened over the last, you know, kind of history of corporate world. Yeah. But that's not enough. Like you want to give leadership training to people who who have the potential, but maybe are not quite there yet. Like they're the ones who are going to benefit the most from it. Um, you're wanting to give it to people who, who come from a different background or who have a different promise. Um, and they're not just, you know, kind of the same mold as every other leader in your organization. Like that's to me, the next frontier to yeah. look beyond just the obvious. Um, 
I also think that um, the whole qualitative part is missing. I think we've become so metrics driven, um, you know, so numbers driven. And, you know, for, ever since I started my career in HR, it's all about, you know, HR data, HR metrics, HR analytics. Um, and we're not going away from that by any means, but I think we're forgetting the human aspect, we're forgetting the qualitative aspect. So I almost think, you know, the new is the new, new old. Uh, I mean, the old is the new, new. Um, you know, let's bring back that human element, that quantitative um, aspect needs to be, you know, in addition to all of the qualitative work that we do within our organizations, let's ask our people, let's get feedback. You know, let's implement initiatives that aren't just tracked by numbers, but that are tracked by impact on people and how it makes them feel and how it helps them to be more engaged and therefore perform better. It's going to result in that, but let's let's not forget that in between part. Absolutely. I agree. And it used to be that employees wanted titles, changes, and recognition for their work. Um, with the great resignation, we're seeing that workers still want those things, but they're also looking for greater, greater meaning in their work. Um, how are companies and leaders evolved to connect with employees with a deeper, at a deeper level? Like, what are some suggestions that you, you've seen or patterns you've seen? You know, a, a very important thing that came out in these last two years um, is that, you know, people are looking at their lives and their work differently. And absolutely, companies should be doing that too, right? So I think that has become very clear, um, you know, with remote work, with people leaving their jobs um, that they may have been in for decades, um, people leaving the workforce completely or looking for alternate ways of working. Um, and people really wanting to connect with their work in a different way um, than what they've typically been known to do. So you're absolutely right. I think companies need to start looking at, at, at this differently and really listening to, to the shift that has very evidently happened in, in the people um, that work for us. Um, you know, what can companies do differently? I mean, listen to our employees more um, and listen to them in a way that you know, we haven't done before. We've asked some pointed questions, you know, if you've done statistics and, and survey, you know that you want to ask questions in a way that leads you to very specific answers, but let's make it a little more open-ended, right? Let's get more input in that maybe we weren't tuned in to listen to. Um, I think the other thing companies need to be doing um, differently is, is how they're looking at their total talent, right? There's this, um, you know, very different aspect of how we deal with our full-time workforce and our contingent workforce. And I bring that back again, because I think that that really needs to shift. Um, you know, we can't be looking at, at this in two different silos and doing things here and not doing things here or, or you know, paying people differently or growing people differently or training people differently. Um, you know, the, the whole legal aspect of it, I think, needs to be addressed very smartly. But in addition to that, I think the whole total talent approach needs to come in where you know that this talent can can read over your full-time employees are going to want to you know maybe look at alternate work and why wouldn't you just hire them yourself um, in that perspective rather than let them go to your competitors or somewhere else um, you know I have a friend who leads um, Unilever's HR um, effort and we were talking recently and she's you know she's brought a whole new element to how they treat alternate workforce. And, you know, they're going so far as to give benefits, um, offer benefits to these people 
um, you know, because they want them to be sustainable for themselves. They want them to be able to make this a life choice and a career choice and still be with the company and not go away somewhere else. So, you know, I think companies can do a lot of creative things there, um, you know, cater to their audience and their employees, but um, we just need to start thinking a little more differently. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think, um, you know, everyone keeps talking about the great resignation. I actually have an article coming in called the great hibernization. And so the idea around it is if, like, I still think it's important to come to work once in a while and, have, and so you have the, the interaction, social interaction, and also there's productivity gains just from learning from each other, but then does it have to happen every day, right? And so if you think about it, if let's say that an average person spends an hour each way commuting, right? So then mm-hmm. over the course of the year, they spend 500 hours commuting. And so let's say that you reduce that by a third. And so they come in the office a third of the time, they work from home two thirds of the time. Mm-hmm. then you've essentially created 320 extra hours of work that they can be productive on, right? Which yeah. Is almost two months of, of extra productivity. And so it's something to like really rethink about how we how we force people to come to work every day. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree with that. And I've been um, a remote worker for a long time, even before this happened. And I remember when I shifted um, because I started working with, you know, colleagues in other other geographies, other countries, you know, I had a very different work shift. I would start at six or seven in the morning. You know, I wouldn't have a stop until like maybe 12 or one in the afternoon. It didn't make sense to go to the office then, um, even if I had some local meetings. And I started to understand how I could be more productive by, you know, changing the schedule to when I worked with people in my local um, office so that I wouldn't have to go to work um, for half a day for just a meeting where I could just do it for one day or two days a week. Um, and I, you know, once I got through that that shift and, and got my kind of schedule down, I had so much time to do additional learning. I had time to do, you know, some, some personal wellness um, that I had never had time for before. Mm-hmm. And so it's, you're right. It, it, can directly relate to productivity for the company, but it can also indirectly benefit um, the employees in ways that, you know, that they had not imagined. And I stayed with that company for so many years and did so many different roles because of this holistic approach that I was able to take by not not having to commute every day. Absolutely. So it helps with retention as well. Yes, Um, yes, absolutely. You just kind of mentioned mental mental wellness. So about three years ago, I spoke in Medtronic, and I talked about how we're building generation anxiety with Instagram because as kids grow up, right, I used to have to worry about maybe I want to compare myself to Michael Jordan, but I don't have to compare myself to everybody who's my neighbor. And now everyone puts up their perfect life, their perfect family, their perfect everything, which is not necessarily true, but it does create anxiety. And so ultimately, if businesses don't start dealing with mental wellness, I think, there, I think there's an article by Citibank or something that said that we'll lose about a trillion dollars of productivity a year. By ignoring this issue, right? Because it's it's real. And with the pandemic, that's kind of poured gasoline on this whole issue and sparked, sparked a greater normalization of mental health and wellness in the workplace. Can you share, share your journey of wellness with yoga and how employees can incorporate wellness at work? Yes. Well, another one of my, my favorite topics. So, <laughs> you know, I think um, I'll start with now, right? And I'll go back a little bit um, mm-hmm. into my, my story. But I think, again, over the last two years, the boundaries have become so much more um, blurred between work and family and, 
you know, schedules and hours of operations and things like that, right? So yeah. it's so common now to, to be in video calls and have a pet or a child, um, you know, be part of the meeting uh, because that's life. People know that that's happening. You know, I can hear cooking going on in the background. I can hear, you know, children in the background and that's fine. Um, but with that, you know, with the blurring of, of those lines has also become, you know, evident that the companies can take a bigger role in taking care of their employees, right? So they started with some very obvious things like, what do you need? What technology do you need to, to function better at work, um, at home, um, in your work? You know, what kind of schedules, flexibility do you need to function better? So I think those were some obvious things. And then very quickly, companies realized that they needed to go beyond that. They needed to look at, you know, health and wellness and, and specifically mental wellness. So, you know, I think, Again, this is another one of those things. So I can fortunately say this happened to me a little bit before it happened to the masses. Yeah. Um, but a few years ago, I, you know, realized myself that, you know, with and maybe it was because of I was because I was a remote employee and because my lines had already blurred a little bit that I really needed to find time and to find things that helped me stay whole, that yeah. helped me balance better. Um, I'm a woman. I'm a mother. You know, I'm a professional. I also am an entrepreneur or was at the time. Um, I also, you know, have a very large and extended family that I'm closely associated with. And I was also doing work within the community and I wasn't ready to give up any of that. Right. I, I wasn't ready to say, you know, this is a phase in my life that I only need to do this and other things can wait. I wanted to be able to, you know, feel whole in, in all of those things that were important to me. But I was, you know, I, I was wanting to do that in a better way for myself so that I don't feel so stretched, which not just women, everybody feels today, but especially women and mothers do. Um, and so I started to, you know, just carve out a little bit of time for myself um, and, and decide what was useful for me um, and what was helpful for me to do in that time. And I'll be honest, it started with shopping. I would just take some time every week and, and chop, right? <laughs> and it helped. Therapy. Like retail therapy helps for a little while, but but that wasn't sustainable. Yeah. Um, you know, I went through the the cycle of all of these different things that you know gurus will tell us and, and experts will tell us. I I found things that I wanted to grow in, so I took some you know learning um, initiatives for myself. And and great, I love to learn. I still do it. But that wasn't enough. That was just one other thing that I, I added to my list and that wasn't really making me um, get to where I wanted to get in terms of, of feeling more whole and more balanced. Mm. Um, and then yoga came into the, you know, one of those, those things. Oh, have you tried yoga? And I'm like, no, I don't have time for yoga. Um, but I did. Um, it, once I started to find time for myself, I did that. And that really, really um, connected the dots for me. It helped me to step back in that time that I took to do yoga and really come back with a much better perspective. And I'm not, you know, this is not about spirituality. This is not about, you know, all of the, the touchy-feely part about yoga. This is just very, very practical. You know, the breathing, the movement, the, you know, the, the benefit of the mind-body connection that, that I got through yoga, that really started percolating into how I could think a little bit more clearly, how I could um, really be more responsive to situations than just, you know, react to them when you're in a rush and when you're going from thing to thing. 
um, I started to get deeper into it. And um, again, the dots connected. I, I became a corporate yoga um, instructor because those were my two worlds. I, you know, I have had a corporate background and I understand what those challenges are. And I was able to bring my experience into, um, into that. So I think that's, that's my journey and it's just started. So it's, it. it's going to go on a long time. Are you doing yoga for Ramstad then? Um, a little bit. Um, you know, we already have a program. Ramstad has a lot of, um, you know, wellness kind of offerings for our employees. So um, I haven't shaken that up because I think that's great. And I'm here to also do other things, but yeah. um, I still teach, um, you know, on the side. And I also teach seniors because I think, you know, that's another population that um, can really, really benefit from, from all of the benefits. So. I have a few other interests as well. I should connect you with my sister. She teaches yoga at the World Bank. She's also a lawyer doing institutional integrity, but she really enjoys doing that part of it during lunch. With the team wow. Well. Yeah, that's <laughs> phenomenal. Um, another question I had. So what does the word consciously unbiased or the term consciously unbiased say, speak to you? How does it, what is, what, what resonates when you hear that? So I think, you know, when I first heard about consciously unbiased, it, it really just connected with me because the word consciousness or consciously um, has a lot of deeper meaning for me. Um, you know, I've always been very, you know, conscious that I want to be conscious about things, about decisions, about, you know, behaviors, about actions. And so I don't believe that we can do anything meaningful unless we're really conscious about what we're doing and where we're going so so that's the first aspect unbiased I mean of course that's a, a slightly relative term for me um, because I, I believe as a human we're all biased in mm -hmm. some way or the other you know biased towards some things biased against some things but when you put the two words together to me it's like you've consciously decided that you're going to be unbiased about something that you would otherwise be biased about Mm -hmm. um, so I love, I love the way that you've coined that term and, um, you know, I think it, it really goes very far in, in what organizations and people need to do. Yeah. Yeah. And I thought it was important because when I kept hearing about, we have to get rid of our biases, biases are bad. And, and one, I don't think you can get rid of biases necessarily. I think you, what you can do is control and manage them and apply them in the right situations. And that's kind of where it was. And then the training companies spend about $8 billion a year in corporate training for diversity and inclusion. And it was a check the box type of, of activity, unfortunately. And the reason was, I think, because our efforts to be inclusive, we made training generic and you don't change behavior unless you connect the mind and the heart and make it a personal passion. So I think that was kind of where this all stemmed from. Um, and that's, that's kind of where it's been resonating with, with clients and people really changing their structures and cultures within the organization by kind of going through these processes. Um, one of the things we released last year was called a microprogression. It's a small action step that leads to a big impact over time. Um, that leaders of all levels can take and build belonging at work. Um, what's one microprogression you could think of that could become contagious with an organization? Oh, I can think of many. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, again, I, I think it comes back to being conscious about what you want to do, right? And, and where you want to go. So I believe one thing that leaders um, of all organizations can do um, in terms of a, a microprogression is listen more you know, ask more, um, have those conversations with everybody that you touch, you know, your teams, your extended workforce, your clients, you know, maybe people around you, 
um, the society that you live in, um, because increasingly the role that organizations and leaders can play has so much more potential. Um, it's not just, you know, what you were hired to do. Um, you talked about your sister, you know, what I do, you know, we we're hired to do a certain work and certain piece of, you know, the pie, but we also have other things to offer and we want to offer that. So I think just listening and, and asking and, and being more conscious of, of the people that you touch, I think that's a, you know, make that part of your day, make that part of your week, do it every, every week and see what you learn and, and build that into your work. So I think that's, that's one micro progression. And I think as an organization too, I know you asked about leaders, but I think as an organization, um, you know, companies need to, to make more conscious decisions of how they use technology, of how they use metrics, of how they use measurements. Um, so, you know, I, when I work with my clients, I'm often suggesting to them, you know, different ways of measurement, but I'm also suggesting to them different technology actions and outcomes um, that will take them beyond, you know, the, where they are in their journey right now. So again, just kind of, you know, showing them that progression of where this can go and starting to look out and maybe do some things that aren't part of your measurements today or part of your metrics today, but let's do that pilot. Let's try that impact. Let's do that activity. Let's build that, you know, solution or, or bring that client or partner in um, to work with us on, on something. I think those are, you know, just, I, I thrive on, on kind of new ideas and, and doing things that are a little different. Um, yeah. So I think that's another progression that organizations can make. I love it. Uh, thank you so much. This is such an interesting and creative conversation. I think I love your creativity and how you're ch changing organizations for diversity and inclusion. Um, so we definitely have to do this again, and I look forward to partnering with you guys. Yes, well, thank you so much for, for bringing this conversation um, you know, to the forefront, and uh, I'm honored to be part of this. You can find out more about our amazing guest and some of the resources we mentioned on the show at consciouslyunbiased.com slash listen. Thanks for listening to Breaking the Bias.